Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Let me say that again in case you didn't catch it all. It's an animated wuxia film with style, incredible action, visual beauty, heart, a great story, full of rich themes and emotions throughout the entire thing. And it's stop motion. It's just so beautiful. Welcome back, everybody, to another Basement Binge episode. Trying to crank these out, staying on schedule. Um, Yeah, this is a ton of fun. So jumping right into it, this is another film that has been on my watch list for as long as I can remember. I think it was, if I remember right, it had to be right around the time that the Basement Binge was starting. So I've been wanting to see it for a long time. This is my first time seeing it. It also is a film that happens to be stop-motion animation. That kind of seems to be the fix lately. Kubo and the Two Strings, to be specific. It's my very first like a film that I've ever seen. I know, I haven't seen Coraline. Please forgive me. I'm planning on seeing it this year. This being my first like a film, again, Kubo and the Two Strings, it's just perfect for The Basement Binge. And what I like to talk about on The Basement Binge and why I like talking about movies, it really seems like Kubo and the Two Strings is a perfect fit. So before we get into the two cents, I just got to mention, please don't forget to leave a review on Podchaser for this episode. You can leave reviews and ratings, star ratings and reviews on every single episode. Go to podchaser.com slash the basement binge. Of course, it's linked in the show notes as well. You can also just go to Podchaser and search for the basement binge. There's tons of ways to find it. So please don't forget to leave a review on Podchaser. Of course, you can enter to win a free screen pass by doing that. It also just helps out the show a ton. Also, if you're into WandaVision and you're enjoying that series and you want to hear what I have to say about it, you can check out Matt Goes to the Movies, wherever you get your podcasts, where every week I'm appearing on that show with Matt and Rob to talk about WandaVision, which is a ton of fun. So check that out if you want. Let's get into the actual film, Kubo and the Two Strings, and we're going to start with Two Cents. So this is all spoiler-free. If you want to avoid spoilers, feel free to continue listening. The Two Cents is just my knee-jerk reaction to the film and what I immediately kind of think and want to talk about with it. And I, I first want to say that Kubo and the Two Strings was a film that I heard about by being on the Wikipedia page for the director of Bumblebee. It was at the time when my main experience with films was blockbusters, specifically the MCU and Transformers, which at the time was Bumblebee, which I love. I've done a review with actually Matt from Matt Goes to the Movies on Bumblebee, which is a fun episode. And so I was really intrigued by how different Bumblebee was than Michael Bay's Transformers. I love both in different ways. It was also a time when I was learning about what a director does. Not that I didn't know before. I mean, I'd gone to film school and taken a class specifically about directors, but I guess I was beginning to experience it outside of the classroom, if that makes sense. So I was really intrigued with Travis Knight as a director who directed Kubo and the Two Strings and Bumblebee. Kubo and the Two Strings was a directorial debut. So anyway, um, it's a stop-motion animation film that is just beautiful. I wish 
I would have experienced the beauty of Leica's stop motion sooner. Specifically, Kubo on the two strings is just astounding to look at. And especially when you remind yourself that what you're seeing is stop motion animation, it's just mind-blowing to think about someone crafting those pieces, you know, making the puppets or making the sets and then manipulating them photo after photo after photo to then be compiled into a stop motion film. It's just incredible. Leica is really pushing the boundaries when it comes to stop motion. And I hope that in the future they receive some more financial success and I want to be a part of that. I haven't been contributing, but I will from now on because uh, I want them to be able to continue on in the future. I want them to survive. Leica, if you didn't know, is an independent production company. They're very small. They've made, I think, five films total, if, I'm, if I remember right. Yeah, we'll get more to that later, but... It's just amazing to see the artistry that goes into visually creating this film. Um, Aside from the animation, which honestly I could talk about forever, the story is also incredible. It's an epic hero's journey in a land full of magic and monsters and samurais. It's the type of story being told that is so new to stop motion. It's, It's not typical in stop motion, and it's a difficult type of story to tell in stop motion with large sweeping sets and scale and monster and, and movement, it's just, it's difficult for stop motion, and I love the ambition in that. It's very impressive. Uh, the level of craft and telling story, in addition to using the stop motion animation at its peak, both just impressive. To quote the IMDb summary, Kubo lives in a quiet, normal life in a small shoreside village until a spirit from the past turns his life upside down by reigniting an age-old vendetta. This causes all sorts of havoc as gods and monsters chase Kubo, who, in order to survive, must locate a magical suit of armor once worn by his late father, a legendary samurai warrior. Honestly, at its core, in the story, and in plot, it's an animated wuxia film. And I love it. I am totally here for it. It's tons of fun. I've been re-wanting, or re-wanting, wow, I'm getting my words mixed up. I've been wanting to rewatch Shadow, which I did an episode on the end of last year. Tons of fun. And I just had a desire for that type of film, you know, a wuxia film with really incredible music and action and, and style. And I had no idea that Kubo unknown, like unintentionally was going to fulfill all those desires that I had. You know, it's, it's a samurai film. It's visually incredible to look at with great style. The action is awesome. The score and music is very similar and reminiscent to that Asian type of wuxia sounding music. That's the best way I know how to describe it because my knowledge of it is so limited. But it just, it it was amazing. And then, then on top of that, it's stop motion, which I've been having a huge fix for. And it has a very, very touching story with incredibly rich themes. Let me say that again in case you didn't catch it all. It's an animated wuxia film with style, incredible action, visual beauty, heart, a great story, full of rich themes and emotions throughout the entire thing, and it's stop motion. It's just so beautiful. Everything, it's just combining. This is, this is going to be a great episode. It really feels like it's just... Kubo and the Two Strings was made for the podcast, the format of the Basement Binge and all the, the segments. So this two cents is getting long. Let's move on here super quick. At its core, Kubo and the Two Strings really is an archetype of a hero's journey, the epic quest in a world of magic. The type of story has been told so many times before, but never with this style and in this way. Um, The details, the conflicts, the rich message. I have nothing wrong with a simple story structure being reused. There's a reason that that structure works so well and is reused. But adding so much detail and humor and heart and love and great characters and visual mastery and, and just 
incredible spectacle. Adding all that together just culminates perfectly. And you get some of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen. I, I keep saying that, but I was just blown away. Very, very similar to what, how I felt in Spirited Away, where watching Spirited Away, I had to keep reminding myself what I'm seeing is hand-drawn. This is incredible. Where here with Kubo on the Two Strings, I had to keep reminding myself, this is stop motion. Like these are physically created and manipulated things, you know, that I can touch. I don't know. It's amazing. So an interview with the director, Travis Nice, said, or he said, we want to make films that matter. We want to tell stories that are thematically rich, that are thought-provoking, that are emotionally resonant, and that hopefully enrich people's lives and talk about some aspect of what it means to be human. By my calculations, they most definitely succeed. Kubo handles topics of death, loss, and grief, forgiveness, and compassion, adversity, and courage, and it's all done with such gentleness that it can be a kid's movie. It makes me love it even more that it doesn't shy away from these real and difficult topics, but uses the fantastical quest to convey them in a meaningful and approachable way. That it can be a kid's movie, but it's also a movie for everyone. Because on top of being tons of fun and incredible to look at and mind-blowing that it's stop motion, the story and the themes in them are important for everyone. And they're done with such maturity and gentleness that it, they're very approachable by everyone. That's incredible. The story is just told with such mastery, knowing perfectly well when and how to slow down to let you appreciate what is happening, whether that's visually or thematically or plot-wise or character growth-wise. It's, it's just incredible how much mastery it goes into this film in both physical, visual storytelling in, and just craftsmanship, but also just storytelling. The way that this story is told through the medium of a film is just incredible. I can't say enough good, if you haven't noticed. I've already mentioned the incredible animation. There, Then you add an amazing voice cast on top of that. They bring integrity to these characters. Humor that really had me laughing way harder. I mean, I still think about the jokes all day today. I've been thinking about them, and they just kind of make me smile and giggle to myself. I'm just kind of being repetitive, saying the same things over and over again, but I can't stress enough how impressed I was by this. I love this movie already. It's among one of my favorites of all time. That's even without a second rewatch. Laika has totally blown me away, and I can't wait for more. I'm sad that I have waited for so long. So that's the two cents. That was a long two cents, but this is an incredible film, and I just want you to be able to watch it. The spoilers are coming. Um, don't be too afraid of them. There's so many great things about this, especially with the fall-in. That's when the real big spoilers come, you know, listening through the binge points and things like that. Not too much is going to be ruined, and there's so much to appreciate about this film, so feel free to keep listening. Before we move on to the other segments, so just some quick announcements. I mentioned this at the beginning, but please, please, please leave a review on Podchaser for this episode. It can just be a simple star rating, or it can be a review that you type out. It can even be a one-star rating if you didn't like it. It helps out the show by letting other people know that it's a quality show that's worth their time, worth their investment of time. And it also benefits you because in the small way that I currently can, I want to be able to give back to you guys who listen as you help me. So every review or rating that you leave on any episode released this month or past episodes, so the entire catalog of past episodes, every single review and rating you leave on Podchaser gives you one entry into a raffle every month that is announced on the monthly update to win a screen pass from me for free. So if I haven't adequately explained what a screen pass is, it's through Movies Anywhere. It's entirely free. You just need a free Movies Anywhere account. And then what I do through the eligible films that I have, I can share it with you. You can pick from any one of the films and watch it for free. Kind of like renting it, but you're not paying for it. So super quick to read a list of all of those films, because there's a lot of them. I'm going to read through them super quick, okay? Just going through the list here. 
Big Fish, Paddington 2, Mad Max the Road Warrior, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Owl of Dogs, Crazy Rich Asians, Julia and Julia, no, Julie and Julia, excuse me, Les Mis, The Man from Uncle, Oblivion, The Secret Wife of Walter Mitty, Independence Day, Resur- or Resurgence, Pacific Rim Uprising, Dunkirk, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight Rises, Elf, Blade Runner 2049, Spirit, Megamind, War for the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Murder on the Orient Express, The Karate Kid, Pacific Rim, Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow, whatever that movie's called, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Little Mermaid 2, The Lego Movie 2, Enchanted, Inception, The Dark Knight, Assassin's Creed, Aquaman, Justice League, Mad Max Fury Road, Ready Player One, and The Lego Batman Movie. So there's quite a few films that you can watch for free. Even if you don't want to watch one of those films, it just helps out the show, helps out me to know what you guys are enjoying and not enjoying. So please, it's free, it's simple, and it helps me out more than you can understand. Please leave a review on Podchaser. Again, that's podchaser.com slash the basement binge, or you can click the link in the show notes. Those are the announcements here. Moving on right along to the next segment, pick your poison. So this is the rating and ranking scale here at the basement binge. You know, instead of giving things out of stars or percentages or grade letter, ranking or rating has to do with interacting with film after seeing it again. So bottom of the list, worst rating is to never watch it again. Above that is to stream it. If it was on a streaming services you were already subscribed to and there was a void of entertainment that you were looking to fill and it was there, you'd stream it. Above that is rent it, being willing to pay a few dollars to watch it once. And top of the list is to buy it full price, watch it as many times as you can. Already, without a doubt, Kubo and the Two Strings is a buy. I cannot wait to own this on Blu-ray. You should see it. I'm going to own it, but I can't stress enough how much you should see it. While we can't go back and fix the box office return that Kubo and the Two Strings had, we can give them a modest return on home video. I mean, a lot of film studios make more through home video anyway. But that conversation aside... I encourage you, go rent the film. Even buy it blind if you haven't seen it and watch it. It is so good, and I know you'll appreciate it. Supporting Leica is something that I really want to stress. They're an independent studio based out of Oregon. It's not Disney. It's not Pixar. The budget that they have had for all five of their films they've made, if you compile all of them together, it's probably still less money than Disney spends on a single film. And it's sad that while these films are crafted so exceptionally well on a good budget for moderate amounts you know it's reasonable and they're exceptional movies visually and thematically and rich in story they have a very small return at the box office and that return is much harder because they rely on a profit they can't absorb these losses like a bigger studio can sadly Kubo and the Two Strings was the first Leica film to gross less than $100 million globally in the box office. Like, like that's already a small number, but for how well Leica manages their budget when making a film, like that's a modest return for them. That's financial success. Do they deserve more in my point of view? Yes. Did I ever do anything to help that? No, but my opinion is drastically changing now after experiencing their work. Well, like I mentioned... Kuba and the Two Strings gross less than that. And then sadly, the film that they had released after this, Missing Link, did even worse. It's one of the, like, historically, one of the worst films financially, as far as, like, cost to return goes. Um, especially when you think about Leica being an independent studio. They don't have the options to absorb these types of losses. And I want them to stick around. You know, Studio Ghibli is already falling apart as is, and that, that saddens me. These incredible, independent, powerful animation studios 
we want to stay around. These are films that enrich lives. And it just, if I can talk about this for a second, it bothers me that a film like the Lion King remake makes a billion dollars. But something like Kubo and the Two Strings can't even make over a hundred million. That is an entirely different conversation just about the nature of the box office and movie going in general. But maybe something that's happening with the coronavirus is that these smaller films are going to be more popular because they'll be supported by streaming studios. Like these are the films that streaming companies are going to be able to afford to continue to be made. So either way, in some way, shape or form, go watch Leica Films. Um, I think it's Paranorman. One of their, their second or third film is on Netflix right now here in the US. Everything else you'd have to rent or except for Missing Link, that's on Hulu. But that being said, especially Kubo and the Two Strings, rent it, buy it. Watch these films. They're so incredible. And I know that you know that you want Leica to stay alive. So yeah, anyway, watch the film. They currently, just one more note about that. They currently have a stop motion animated Batman film in the works to be released in 2024. If you are as excited about that as I am, go buy and rent this film and support Leica. Help them get some type of return on the home video market because that, that Batman film, is something that I know we all want to enjoy. So that's enough of Pick Your Poison and, and box office and money and all that sadness. Let's move on to the next segment, Live Up. So this is talking about my expectations before and if it ex- lived up to them. Like I mentioned, I heard about Kubo and the Two Strings when I was reading about Bumblebee's director, Travis Knight, who directorial debut was with Kubo and the Two Strings. We'll talk a little bit more about him later in Binge Points, but as far as my own life, this was a time where I was just experiencing those major blockbusters. I already mentioned this. But I was glad that Kubo and the Two Strings came along and I was able to enjoy it later in life when my palate had expanded, so I was able to enjoy it for all that it was. If I were to watch it way back then, like two years ago in 2018, I'm sure I would have loved it. I would have been blown away by it, but I don't think I would have appreciated all that it is. So anyway, going into my expectations, I didn't know what to expect. I don't even know what my expectations were. I didn't know anything about Leica. I saw mostly positive reviews for Kubo and the Two Strings, but it's not a hugely popular film. So I, I, I honestly, I didn't watch any trailers. I had no idea what to expect. All I saw was the posters. And I don't even, re- I, I think I realized it was stop motion. I don't know, but it, it, Either way, I, obviously I had to go into whatever. I'm rambling. I didn't know what to expect. I'm not quite sure what my expectations were, but I don't think that it's possible for me to have expectations high enough because whatever I was expecting is it was exceeded tenfold. Just this is a spectac- spectacular film. So completely exceeded anything I could have gone in looking for. Moving on to the next segment, Bench Points. To continue on the trend of Fantastic Mr. Fox, last episode... My name is mentioned in this movie again. Now, sadly, it's just in the credits. It's not in the film, but it's in like the major stylized credits, not the, just the black and white ones that scroll. The closing song, while my guitar, what the, let's try that again. The closing song, while my guitar gently weeps, performed by Regina Spector, is written by George Harrison. That song has been on nonstop repeat since finishing this film. Great version of it. Um, but anyway, so George Harrison, he wrote that. Song. What else is funny is that my nickname when I was a toddler was George. My dad always called me George because of Curious George. So I pretty much wrote the song without even knowing it. Um, besides that, unimportant detail, let's talk about things I love about this film. Just things I noticed. The lighting in this is amazing. From the reflection in eyes to sunsets, the moonlight, glowing monsters, everything. The lighting and the way it's used is incredible. 
even more so, again, as I'm reminded by that these things are built, this light isn't being rendered or created through software. This is light being admitted from a physical source, you know, like Soul or Incredible Twos. Those are two films that have phenomenal lighting. And I love the lighting in both of those films. But knowing that someone had to create and craft something, setting and rigging these giant mu- puppets and monsters and sets and capturing this light through their creation is just amazing. It's so impressive to me. On top of that, just the general shot composition here is incredible. The framing and everything from this film, every second, every moment I love. Other thing is the humor. I mentioned this a little bit in my two cents, but holy moly, I was not expecting this to be as funny as it was, especially Matthew McConaughey's character, Beetle. I'm not going to be able to recapture some things, but just if you've seen the film, some funny things to remember that Matthew McConaughey says, do I have eyelids? I mean, I've been laughing about that all day. Then he says, I'm either a samurai or a really bad hoarder. Or later he says, stealth is my middle name. And Monkey responds, you don't even have a first name. The way he's stuck on his back and like grunts. I can't stop laughing about that. Like that's just so, Matthew McConaughey is a beetle stuck on his back and it's hilarious. Then Kubo talking to Monkey. Monkey, do you ever say anything encouraging? I encourage you not to die. (laughs) Or Beetle, I have a question. If I'm Beetle and you're Monkey, why isn't he called boy? <laughs> I just, the humor is like so subtle. I don't know. I find it witty and just kind of like left field, so to speak, that it's just, it's just tons of fun for me. This movie really is funny throughout the entire thing. There's also some incredible details in the visuals. For example, just one thing to point out is the scratches on people's eyes. Kubo's mother has a scar over her eye, but then the, also the little monkey totem toy thing he has, it has like a little scratch being worn out on the eye and when monkey comes alive has the same scratch it's on the other side of his mom then the same thing he gives moon king an eye to see the world and other people's goodness for their soul but the other one is scratched just cool details to have all that left in there and that's just visually then there's the details in the story the way the beetle and monkey still love each other as his parents even though they don't know it from the way they have adult conversations to the way they flirt with each other, and Kubo's reaction is saying, you guys are being weird again. Beetle's immediate devotion to protect Kubo. It's all just so loving. And while I totally guess the reveal that they were his parents, that was most definitely intentional. You know, there's obvious foreshadowing for that, and it's great. But having that reveal, it makes all of those moments where you're kind of putting it together so much more rewarding retroactively and adds so much emotion and love to it. Other moments that are incredible detail in the story. In the opening, he sets up three bowls, one with rice and then two are empty. And one, he puts down monkey with a toy. And then you would expect that he's going to put down a second toy and then it's going to be him eating the rice. But it's for his mom. It's not even for him. That small bowl was for him. And the hurt you immediately feel for him just through that visual language. And later, he does get to enjoy a meal between two people like you can tell he wants to do. And just that unsaid desire that's that's played out in just a kid setting up some bowls. It's amazing. The other thing is it opens with Kubo picking up a bunch of paper, which you think is because of the wind, only to later realize that it's a consistent thing he has to do because of his grieving mother and the magic power she has and how her grief affects that. Moving stuff. Those first... 15 minutes are some incredible moments in film and uh, really powerful. And then later, referencing those first 15 minutes, when Beetle is on the boat, or I guess all three of them are, Monkey, Beetle, and Kubo, and they're eating together, Kubo realizes the truth about what his mother described his dad as. Funny and kind and smart and clever. Oh, this is what I wrote down. I don't even have to guess. How his dad was just like him, strong and clever and funny. 
And Kubo sees the reality of that without even knowing. And that is just so touching to either guess that and have that realization in the moment through your own deductiveness, but also retroactively at the end to have that moment mean something more. I don't know. It's, it's just very, very powerful storytelling. But now onto the binge points about production. These are some binge points that I'm loving. Sadly, I don't own this yet. Keyword yet. I'm going to very, very soon. I know that. I, I love this film. So all the research that I had to do was kind of limited to what I could find online through interviews and YouTube. Um, but be, these behind the scenes things, especially with stop motion, is something that I'm loving more and more. So with stop motion, if you don't know, simple explanation, everything is built. What you see is physically there, whether it's a puppet or a set that's built, everything is built. And so crafting an epic journey is not very natural to the mechanics of stop motion. And Leica being an independent animation studio on top of that, that requires incredible amounts of discipline with money and resources to be able to both balance finances and financial security through an independent studio, but also craftsmanship and scope and trying new things and and pushing the envelope with stop motion. Specifically, this film took five years to create the entire movie from like start to finish. Two of those years were for shooting. So that's three whole years just in preparation when, you know, designing the puppets, building the puppets, storyboarding, writing the story, voice recording for the actors, all of it. But then all that preparation pays off for something that's incredibly crafted. And again, when I'm watching, I have to continually remind myself what I'm seeing is physically captured through stop motion. And of course, there's some visual effects, which are also just phenomenal. I saw that this was nominated for an Oscar for visual effects. It should have won because those visual effects are amazing. And the way that they were able to capture the reality of stop motion through visual effects is just amazing. Of course, there's some things that obviously you can see are visual effects, but the reference to that stop motion is incredible. Get more into that in a second. But physically building things and then moving them shot by shot just blows me away. So they, I, I love that Leica tells riskier stories with a lean budget. And it's impressive that they get such powerful visuals on such a small budget. So anyway, some cool practical details. The leaf boat that they ride, the Kubo Bills, that was actually built. It was like a big set that they built. It was had 250,000 leafs that were independently placed by humans. 16 artists of different disciplines over four months put together this boat of 250,000 leaves. That's a quarter of a million literally leaves. Other things, the way that they captured Matthew McConaughey's face and, and mannerisms in Beetle is incredible. For example, there are, through the different things they have through brow and f- mouth and total face combinations for Kubo, there are 48 million different expressions that Kubo can have through all the faces that they made. Other things, the hair that Kubo has and the fur, or, so the hair is human hair and the fur on monkey is fur that's then combed through with silicon to allow it to be manipulated and adjusted and stay firm to avoid the chatter that you'll notice Wes Anderson loves, referencing Fantastic Mr. Fox. Again, the way that you see the film just kind of like move around like crazy chatter because it's being adjusted by humans' fingers, touching it and matting it different ways between the adjustments, having the silicon comb through that fur and human hair allows it to stay and it's amazing to see the differences between Wes Anderson and Leica and how Leica is devoted to like a precise beauty while Wes Anderson is devoted to like a crazy beauty and how they're both totally different independent things and how they're both great but so to get back to Leica it's just amazing the amount of work and engineering that went into these things for example the sisters capes 
They're made out of piano hair and 800 little feathers, specifically placed to be able to move and adjust without overlapping each other and, and infringing on one another. It's just incredible. Then we get to the monsters in this film, and they are huge with incredible scale. If you watch through the credits, after the stylized credits, you get to see them building the giant red skeleton. But to give you some statistics about it, it is 16 feet tall and weighs over 400 pounds. If I remember right, its reach, like its wingspan was like eight feet tall or, or eight feet or something like that, if I remember right. The eyeball creatures in the water, those are 11 feet tall and almost three feet wide. And they were used to calculate their reaction in response to a bowling ball. And that's how they move around the water. The way that that was made is that they had a lot of stop motion references, whether it was these copper wires that moved with a shower curtain or, or fluid over it to move. And then later that footage being referenced and enhanced with CGI. One shot of water took an entire year to finish visually because it wasn't just like, okay, let's slap on some VFX on here, which, I mean, you can't do anyway. VFX always takes time, and it's incredible what VFX artists do, uh, but specifically in this case, to have a meticulousness to it, to be referencing something is even more impressive. So if any of these you know, behind-the-scenes production details specifically about stop motion is something that interests you, I'm going to have two links in the show notes to some really great YouTube videos where you can see. One of them is an, like a, an, an Academy original. It's called Credited as a Stop Motion Animator, and it's just a great visual explanation of all the work that goes into creating stop motion animation. And specifically, the stop motion animator Daniel Alderson, I think is his name, who worked on Fantastic Mr. Fox, Paranorman, and The Box Trolls, and the video that you see is made while he's working on Kubo and the Two Strings. So if you're interested in seeing more of that, that's an amazing video. The other one is a 45-minute long video. It's called The Art and Science of Leica, where Leica themselves gives kind of like a TED Talk about what they do. Both amazing. They're both going to be linked in the show notes. So let's also talk about Travis Knight as, in, as part of these Ben's points and why he decided to direct. So a little bit more about Travis Knight. Like I mentioned, the reason I discovered this film in the first place is because it was his directorial debut and I learned about him as a director through Bumblebee. So he's worked in animation for almost 20 years. He produced Paranorman and Box Trolls. He was an animator, including an elite animator or a producer on all of Leica's films. Yeah, he's currently the CEO of Leica. He has been since 2009. And in interviews, he's talked, specifically with this film, he talked a lot about his love for fantasy that he got from his mom and his love for Japanese art and style that he got from his dad. And he described Kubo as a story about family inspired by family. And as I later learned, and I'll talk about in Fall In, this story was very personal to him in all things, in style and animation, in tone, in story and story elements, and definitely, most strongly, in theme. And what's great is that Kubo was developed in-house. It was written, just to use Travis Nice words, it's not pop culture confections. It's something with meaning. And it's amazing that the writers on Kubo and the Two Strings, they all, I think there's three of them, all three of them only have three writing credits total, Kubo being their biggest project. And there's a reason that there's such genuineness to this. Of course, in Travis Knight's involvement and, and his history growing up with stop motion, with Japanese culture and art and appreciation for that, and also his love for fantasy and having his life experience as a CEO of Leica and as an animator, but also his life experience as an appreciator of specific styles and how that helps it all come together. It, it works so well. So Travis Knight clearly just felt a personal attachment to both the story and the style and 
art involved in this film. And I think he just kind of decided, I want to direct this one because he cared about it. Now, how that went from directing this incredible film to Bumblebee, which is great. I'm not knocking Bumblebee, but I don't see the connection. And then later he's directing like the $7 billion man. And he's still the CEO of like, I don't know how any of that works. And it's kind of interesting how this guy like went from being an animator and CEO to like now a really good director <laughs> to direct a Transformers movie. I, I have no idea how he got hired. Maybe I'll get to that at some point, but it's kind of interesting. Um, one last unconsequential detail that I just noticed in an interview that I thought was hilarious. When Travis Knight is talking about the sisters and how they're terrifying, these are his words. He says, I mean, that's white knuckling, bow loosening, terrifying, full on horror mode. <laughs> Oh, funny description. So, whatever. Let's move on to leaks and likes. Okay, if you didn't see this coming, there's not a single thing I don't like about this. Not a single one. I'm sorry, that's cheap. But there's not a single moment that I didn't love what I was seeing. Um, like, it's hard because I want to say everything. And that's cheap. If I have to pick one moment, it's, it's hard to pick one exactly. It'd be one of two. The battle with the big the skeleton thing. And, and from like the moment they walk in and see the sword indestructible to the moment they like go flying out and all that's involved in that that's just a great moment of kubo and beetle both developing his characters and and monkey it's also just visually impressive technically impressive and adds great to the story the other moment that would be my favorite is the opening when kubo does his little street performance through origami that was just tons of fun and i really like that so lastly let's get to fall in here so this is where we dig into messages meanings themes things that pull away from the film to become better because of it and this is perfect for it again to jump back to travis's knight's words that i mentioned in the two cents we want to make films that matter we wanted to tell stories that are thematically rich that are thought-provoking that are emotionally resonant that hopefully enrich people's lives and talk about some aspects of what it means to be human again they completely succeeded that and from everything it's like they were crafting this film for me to talk about on the basement binge including and especially the segment fall in i find it amazing that like it doesn't focus group anything so if you don't know what a focus group is especially in this film it's like where they take an early cut of the film and have people watch it to see how they react to it and then change things based off their reactions the fact that like it doesn't do any of that i find really impressive because you get the exact results of the creative team the director the writer animators you get what they create, and it's just perfect. Then it feels so genuine. And I love also that in this story, they don't speak down to any kid or to families. I mean, nothing's watered down. They're telling real and hard stories through the fun of fantasy, and the, the marriage of those two things works together perfectly. So let's talk about how real this story really is. I said I mentioned this about Travis Nice. So remember when I said it was personal to him? I was reading some interviews, and Something really tragic happened to him. So let me just mention this super quick. In 2004, at age 29, Travis Knight learned in a phone call that his brother, Matthew, who was, who was four years older, had died in a scuba diving accident in El Salvador. Travis was the one who was responsible to find and inform his parents, which just happenstance, not happenstance, but if you didn't know, Nike founder Phil Knight and his wife Penny Knight, those are his parents. Um, they were actually out at a movie and Travis had to go find them and tell them. In his own words, he described it as, that was maybe the worst day of my entire life. My brother and I had unresolved things. I just wish I could have one final conversation with him. I was intensely, profoundly angry at the unfairness of it all. 
those intense and difficult feelings of grief Travis experienced led into the story of Kubo. I mean, talking about the story, Travis said, when Kubo responds to grief and loss and he's got rage and anger, that's real. That's what we feel. Talking about himself again, Travis said, it took me a good long while before I could make peace with it myself. No wonder that Travis jumped on the story and had such a personal approach to it. Because Kubo and the Two Strings is primarily about Kubo maturing, finding his family, accepting himself, and saving the day with compassion, at least in a watered-down plot explanation. But there's powerful themes in there about death and memories. There's incredible themes in there, you know, about duality, kind of a yin-yang type thing with life and death, with maturing and growing up. But specifically what I want to talk about is death and memories. Kubo plays a Japanese instrument called a shamisen. I think that's how you say it. It has three strings. On top of adding to great music in the film, it's literally and figuratively representative of Kubo. So again, it has three strings. Kubo being one of them, and his parents and their memories being the other two. A hair from his mother sacrificing herself to save him when he had a strand of her hair, and a string from his father's bow. So it's literally Kubo and the two strings. Together they make up the three strings. In the final conflict, Kubo says to the Moon King, Memories are the most powerful kind of magic there is. During that final fight, Kubo says he's going to kill him. The Moon King says, like, what are you going to do next? And he says, kill you or something like that. I don't remember the exact thing. But it comes across very uncomfortable. Wrong. And it's natural because Kubo has experienced incredible amounts of loss. He is dealing throughout the beginning of the story with the loss of his mother through her memory. And then later to realize that he gets to be with his mom a little bit longer and see her for who she is. And then to later realize that he has also been able to be with his dad and appreciate him for the warrior he is to later have them both killed and taken away from them. That's, that's incredible loss. So naturally, he's full of anger. His response is rageful. And the uncomfortableness comes from knowing that that's wrong, that there is a better path for Kubo to choose. And luckily, he does. He chooses a better path and uses compassion and the magic of his memories for his parents to change the Moon King through forgiveness. Probably the man most difficult to offer that compassion and forgiveness to. So in the words of his mother, describing the events with her father when she met him, his compassion gave me mine. Kubo's compassion gave the Moon King his. The way that death and memories and love and compassion are all woven together in that conclusion is very, very powerful. Even the way that it goes on to have Kubo desire to have a final goodbye, a final interaction with his parents so that it can be a happy ending. Just to talk about memories a little bit more. Our heroes are challenged by these immortal gods, okay? So they're una- these immortal gods are unable to understand why one would fight so hard to just die another day. How mortality is filled with evil and loss and death. Moon King even addresses Kubo and says, all that you love is dead. But what Kubo loves is still with him in the most powerful way, through his memories. The story of his father and his mother lives on in his memories. I don't have some profound explanation or insight beyond that simple truth as I just stated it. There's so much worth in living when we have memories of those we love. Life is futile without it. To use the words of the film, to look into someone's eyes and see their souls. That truly is worth living for. And to have that memory carried on with you forever is a powerful, powerful kind of magic. And sadly, sometimes that magic we have to cling to a little bit harder when we are confronted with loss and death. And 
there's two moments in my life that I reflected on as I was watching this film. The first is one when I was very young. And to spare you the gory details, when I was young, my brother and I, well, actually our family, we bought a pet rat. The first pet we ever had, our art teacher um, who lived in our neighborhood, she had rats. And they were actually really adorable. Uh, When we told people we had pet rats, they're like, oh, gross. And that's what most people say. But in fact, both my wife and I, when we were kids, we had pet rats. Anyway, they're adorable. They really genuinely are so cute. Anyway, my art teacher, she had rats. They had kids. We bought one of the baby rats. And she came home. Unless she lived with us. Her name was Ella. Or we named her that. And she stayed in my brother's and I room. We shared a room. And she stayed at the foot of my bed in her cage. And we grew to love her so deeply. And there was one day where through a traumatically horrible event, when I was like eight or nine years old, she died. And I saw her die in a bloody mess. And I'm not saying bloody in a British way, like bloody as in there was lots of blood. And it it was sad. It was traumatic. It was horrifying for both my brother and I. We cried all night, just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I kept going out. I don't want this to be too morbid, but the rat, her body, we wanted to bury in our backyard. So it was night. We couldn't bury her. My dad wanted to wait till morning. We, she was wrapped in a towel in the backyard and just kept outside until we could bury her. And I, against my parents' wishes, I kept sneaking out to go look at her again in the towel to have one more memory with her to appreciate and love her a little bit longer. That was the first time in my life, I was very young, that I experienced any type of loss for something that I loved so deeply like you do a pet. It was hard. It was really, really hard for me. And I cried. I would wake up almost every night, even after we buried her, just just bawling my eyeballs out because I missed the sound of her at the end of my bed. And so my sister, my little sister, did something really nice for my brother and I. She printed out a picture for each of us, a picture for me where I'm holding her and a picture for him where he's holding her. And we put them on our headboards on our bed. And the way that having that memory and and remembering that, remembering the positive instead of the dead body in my backyard or the memory that she's missing, remembering what the time I had with her, even though it was a pet rat, even though that's a simpler thing, that memory helped me, helped me deal with that grief. And I still love my pet rat, Ella. Every time I tell this story, I think I get emotional because I think about how much I loved her. One more recent experience happened just a few weeks ago. Sadly, my wife's grandpa passed away. His name was Grandpa Norm. And as much as the family was expecting it, it's still sad when someone you love passes away, especially with the matters of a funeral and COVID and how that changes gatherings and things like that. Uh, They were able to have an experience that worked out really well. We went to the funeral home and... Norm, the grandpa, he has, if I remember right, eight kids, maybe 10. My wife is going to have to correct me out for this. Uh, So it's a big family. You know, I'm the grandson-in-law of him. And so there's tons of grandkids and great-grandkids there. And so those immediate family members, we were able to get together in a social distancing way, be there for the funeral. But there wasn't a big program that we had or anything like that. We had a simple ceremony. And then at the end, we just got up to a microphone and shared experiences and memories and stories of Grandpa Norm. Although I was so new to the family and I'd only kind of met Grandpa Norm as his health started to decline and I didn't have too too many memories with him, being able to experience others' memories of him was a powerful experience. I 
am not a fan of funerals. I don't think anybody is. But as far as funeral grows, that was probably one of the best ones I've went to. It was filled with joy and laughter and happiness and not in like a passive brushing off the grief type of way, but in a healing positive type of way. And also dealing with the reality of a grief that this individual who we're celebrating is gone. And that is sad and that's heartbreaking. And you should definitely mourn and have grief. But these memories are something that you can carry with you, a magic to make that grief a little more bearable, to have your journey on life be a little more meaningful, to have those memories with you. And although I didn't know him, I'm grateful to have that memory with my wife of that funeral and what that meant. And what it meant to now share those memories with so many family members. It's just powerful stuff. It was really touching. And and to see that in reality and then to see it portrayed so perfectly in a film was just really touching. Memories really are the most powerful magic. And it's just an amazing thing. And I love that Kubo, him and his two strings are him and his parents. His memories of them. Although they're gone and they don't get to come back, even at the end as he's speaking to them and, and asking, saying, I don't really know how this works, but can you come back? I remember at the end of the film as I was happening, I was like, no, don't bring him back. Like, don't fall to the level that Disney does sometimes. Like, things aren't always a happy ending. It wasn't. Like, his parents are still gone. They're still dead. They're with him in his spiritual form. But it's a happy ending because he gets to experience them through his memories. And I wish I had more eloquent words to say it besides that. I don't, but that's the simple truth. Memories are a powerful thing that we can carry with us for those that we love. And I'm really grateful for that. But one other brief thing that I want to touch on is the strength of love. There's a moment when Monkey, who's Kubo's mom, is confronting her sister. And her sister's evil. She's doing the wishings of the evil Moon King, which Monkey used to do until she ran away with her husband because she loved him and had her eyes open through him. The sister's saying, like, love made her weak. And Monkey replies by saying, no, it made me stronger. And it's just a powerful moment, a simple phrase. It's so truthful. But I also want to talk about this other moment. When Kubo's parents first meet, his mom's telling the story to Kubo about this. Kubo's dad tells Kubo's mom something really powerful. He says to her, you are my quest. And I love the cliche dodge in a funny way of the four words that she says he said to her being meaningful, not being, I love you, monkey, like Beatle suggests, which was funny. But just the, the idea about a loved one being your quest is powerful. Now, now, let me clarify before I go further. People you love are not a quest to accomplish or to, a victory to win through valor. You, you know, that, that by no means is someone you love a quest to accomplish. But what my wife and my future family is to me is a quest. I was talking to my wife about this just the other night. They are a hero's journey to me. They're my journey, if you will to overcome adversity, and to give them the best life that I possibly can. My, my life definitely did not start that way. My selfish interests, my quest for a golden armor, if you will, to use the film's premise, my selfish interests were interrupted by a beautiful girl. And I could not be more grateful for that interruption and how that's totally changed my quest. My quest in life has totally adjusted and been changed to give her the life that I find her worthy of. That's my quest. Living for someone is a powerful thing. Instead of something physical, you know, a golden set of armor or, or whatever it is, having that change to quest for someone is powerful. So in our story, to have the world's greatest samurai warrior give up his quest for magical golden armor for a family he loves, it's fitting that he would tell them 
that she is now his quest. Giving that family all he sees them worthy of is his quest, and that's just beautiful. And the director, Travis Knight, even agrees. At the end of the credits, at the very end, he says to my two strings, mom and dad. And then he also says to his wife and his three kids, you are my quest. You always have been. And I think that's just a beautiful thing. I might start saying that to my wife, as cheesy as it is. I find it touching. Now, I'm grateful for a film that touched me with that message of memory and the message of love and how those are two powerful things in our life, two powerful forms of magic. And how a film that's visually stunning and fun and has humor and heart is able to convey that message with such sincerity and and tenderness and genuineness in a way that impacts me and that I continue to reflect on, but also being ultimately enjoyable. It's an incredible feat, and I love it. I love Kubo and the Two Strings, and it is most evidently at the top of my list, and you should check it out. Like I mentioned, Leica is a studio that's doing amazing things. I can't wait to experience more of their work, but they deserve our support. So rent the film, buy the film, anything you can do to support Leica, do so. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Basement Binge. This was an episode that I did not expect to be this personal. I did not expect it to become something that I love so much. Like I said, I'd never seen this film before, any Leica film. I had no idea that I was going to like it this much. I thought there was just going to be oh, this is a film that I kind of like, and I had no idea that I would feel this passionate about this episode. So thanks for listening. This is a smaller film that you may not click on. And if you didn't listen all the way through, I'm so grateful. This is a very, very powerful film and an episode that I really loved to create. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Of course, I'm going to mention, leave a review on Podchaser if you enjoyed this episode, even if you didn't. Leave a rating, a star rating, and a review. It helps out the show a ton. also gives you a chance with a free screen pass. So podchaser.com slash the basement binge. Also listed in the show notes. Subscribe to The Basement Binge if you aren't already because there's more episodes coming, more episodes from Leica in addition to some other stop motion and of course getting into those series and franchises we're binging. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. Ciao, ciao. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.